Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 38. Last week, I wrapped up the history found in the book of Deuteronomy, and with that finished the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. This only took four and a half years. Before moving on to the next section in the text, I need to summarize, as quickly as practical, what's transpired so far. And with that, let's get started. Of course, it all begins with Genesis, and in the beginning, the very beginning, when God creates the heavens and the earth, day and night, the sky, the seas, and the dry ground, vegetation, the sun, moon, stars, living creatures, and man, a being created in his own image. God creates man from the dust and then, using a rib from Adam, creates Eve as a helper, saying, a man will be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. So, add to the list of things created, marriage and family, for better or for worse. There's more detail, so much that we get two distinct versions of the creation story. Eden, Adam, and Eve. Eve partakes of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Adam shortly follows, and they lose their innocence and are ashamed of their nakedness. God curses the serpent and foretells painful childbirth for women and painful toil for men ending with the return to the dust from which they came. In other words, paradise was gone, and living outside of the garden would be a struggle. The original sinful duo were cast from the garden and built a family. This part of the first couple of chapters serves many functions, including explaining the origins of people. It also establishes the chosen lineage through Seth to Shem, who would become the Semites, and then to Eber, who would become the Hebrews. All of this leading to Abraham and Israel. But I'm getting ahead of the narrative. A few generations later, things had already gone off the rails. God punishes the wickedness of man with a great flood, but establishes a covenant with the virtuous Noah to save his family from destruction. As part of this covenant, Noah is told not to eat meat with blood in it. The rainbow will serve as the sign of God's covenant to never use a massive flood to destroy all of mankind again. Starting over only with Noah, his family, and the land-dwelling animals that made it on the ark, the earth is repopulated. Some generations later, man is full of himself again, as people tend to get. Mankind apparently unites and speaks a single language. Given contextual clues, we can see that people had migrated east, building a society in the land of Shinar, thought to be in southeastern Mesopotamia, in the central to southern portion of modern-day Iraq. This could also be the same place as Sumer. The people of Shinar agreed to build a city with a tower tall enough to reach heaven. God, seeing their city and tower, is concerned that now man will be able to do anything. So he confuses them by making them all speak different languages. He then scatters them all across the globe. In the Old Testament, 
This story helps to explain how man ended up everywhere, speaking different, though sometimes related, languages. But there's something else here, or possibly dating back a little earlier to Noah. Not only did the confusion of tongues lead to different languages, but also to each group having different religions. And in nearly every case, polytheism and the corresponding pantheon of deities. In the very next chapter, we're introduced to Abraham, though at the time he's known as Abram. At the same time Abraham is brought into the picture, so is his father Terah. The two men, along with their families, immigrate from Ur of the Chaldeans, which is in Mesopotamia, to Haran, a city thought to be in present-day Turkey. Then God speaks to Abram, telling him to go to Canaan, where he will make a great nation from his offspring. Before that, though, there is a famine, with Abram and his wife Sarah escaping to Egypt. Sometime later, they return to Canaan. There, he divides the land with his nephew Lot. Lot takes the section that includes the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, while Abraham retains Canaan. Lot is taken prisoner. There is a war, with Abraham fighting for his nephew. Abraham's men defeat five allied kings. God then promises Abraham an uncountable number of descendants, despite him being old and not having a single son. Then, Abraham fathers a son, but not with his wife, but instead with her maid. That son, Ishmael, is described as a wild donkey of a man. God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, sparing Lot and his family, though his wife doesn't make it far before being transformed into a pillar of salt. Sarah finally bears another son, Isaac, and Abraham evicts Ishmael and his mother from their residence. God tests Abraham's faith by asking him to sacrifice Isaac, Though Abraham is seemingly hesitant, he does begin to carry the command through. Fortunately for Isaac, an angel intervenes just in time, and he is spared. Later, Isaac travels to Mesopotamia to attain a wife, finding Rebekah, who bears him two sons, Esau and Jacob. In his old age, Isaac is deceived by the second-born Jacob, who had the help of his mother. Isaac blesses Jacob, thinking he was his older brother Esau. Jacob does as his father did, and journeys to Mesopotamia in search of a wife, and comes back with a pair, Leah and Rachel. God wrestles with Jacob on the road at night and renames him Israel, meaning he who struggles with God, foreshadowing the future of the people who would descend from him. He would go on to have a caravan load of kids, including 11 boys. His favorite, Joseph, is sold by his brothers into slavery and ends up in Egypt. While there, and following some time in prison after being falsely accused of a crime, he is brought out to interpret the Pharaoh's dream. When he does this, he gains the ruler's favor and is made second in charge. After storing up the excess grain, just like the dream said, there was a drought. This leads to his brothers, and eventually his father, 
along with their families, traveling to Egypt for food and refuge. What followed was an awkward, then joyous family reunion. On his deathbed, Jacob blesses his sons and lays out their future. Things like Judah being like a lion. Joseph then reminds his brothers of God's promise to return them all to the land promised to them through their father Jacob, grandfather Isaac, and great-grandfather Abraham. But that would have to wait, as all of the brothers die in Egypt. In the last, surprisingly short section of the last chapter of Genesis, we're told that Joseph died and was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Contrast this with the very beginning of the book, in the beginning, then, in a coffin. Humanity had come so far since being cast from Eden, but still had so far to go. And all of this, up until this point, creation to Egypt, is just in the book of Genesis, which of course is followed by Exodus. Israelites, named so because they all descended from Jacob turned Israel, would spend some 400 years in Egypt, first as welcomed exiles fleeing a drought. But the welcome eventually wore out, and they were placed into forced labor by the Pharaoh de Jor. Eventually, the baby Moses is born to an Israelite woman. The Pharaoh is so concerned about the Israelites, he launches a plan to kill every newborn boy, which would include Moses. His mom puts him in a basket in the reeds, where he is found by Pharaoh's daughter. She adopts him, and Moses is raised in the royal household. Later, when he was an adult, Moses murders an Egyptian. A quick sidebar. There are memes floating around, listing out the flaws in major biblical figures, and it lists that Moses had a stutter, which may be true. We're told he was slow of speech and tongue. Anyway, the meme always makes me chuckle. It should say that he was a murderer, even more so than Paul. Learn your history, people. Back to the text. Well, really the summary. Moses escapes to Midian, where he meets his wife and her family, including her dad, a priest in their religion. Eventually, God calls him to return to Egypt via a burning bush to lead the Israelites out of their bondage, but he resists, at least initially. Eventually, he does return, though God tries to kill him while en route, but Moses is saved by his wife Zipporah. He eventually makes it back to Egypt, where, after 40 years in exile, he meets up with his brother Aaron. The fantastic duo gains an audience with the Pharaoh, thought to be Ramses II, where Moses demands that the Israelites be allowed to return to their homeland in Canaan. Of course, the Pharaoh isn't going to let his cheap labor leave, because some guy just came wandering back in from the desert, even if he looks a little familiar. No one said it was going to be easy. Moses, with the help of his brother, and even more so divine assistance, brings multiple plagues on the land, each time giving the Pharaoh a chance to cry uncle. But he doesn't. 
Not after plagues of blood in the Nile, frogs, flies, boils, hail, locusts, darkness. The last plague is apparently the worst. The loss of all of the firstborn in the land, humans, and livestock. The Israelites marked their doorpost with lamb's blood in order to be spared. And that night, God passes over the land, doing just as he promised, marking the Passover that is still celebrated today by observant Jews. After this, Pharaoh agrees to let the Israelites go, and they leave, walking eastward, back toward Canaan, led by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. Before long, they encounter the Red Sea, or maybe the Sea of Reeds. About this time, Pharaoh has a change of heart and decides he wants his servants back, sending his army to retrieve them. Moses and the people are standing on the shore of the Red Sea, which he parts, and then walk across, on dry land. Pharaoh's army is in hot pursuit, but before they catch up, the Israelites make it all the way across and the water rushes back in, drowning the pursuing Egyptian army. With that, the Israelites were finally free from their Egyptian bondage. From then on, until they crossed the Jordan River into Canaan some 40 years later, God would provide them with food in the form of manna and quail. Their clothes and sandals never needed mending, and Moses has the ability to draw water from rocks, like he did at Horeb. They were attacked by the Amalekites at Rephidim, but Joshua led them to victory, all while Moses overlooked the battlefield from a nearby hill, holding up his arms to aid in the fight. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brings Moses' wife and sons to him in Sinai. We were never told when or why they left, possibly during the influx of plagues in Egypt. Jethro tells Moses he's killing himself trying to micromanage rule over the Israelites and advises him to set up a system of judges. That way, Moses only has to decide the most important cases and can deal more with the strategy and planning, not the minutiae. Eventually, they make it to Mount Sinai. Moses ascends where God tells him that if the people obey him and keep the covenant, they will be his holy nation. This is when and where God lays out a foundational theology in which he reveals himself, his attributes, his redemption, his law, and how he is to be worshipped. God then gives Moses the commandments. Other laws are also given, and God tells him how to build a portable temple with all of its furnishings. All total, Moses has spent 40 days and nights on the mountain. When he finally gets back, he finds that the people had run rampant and have begun worshipping a golden calf, made by, of all people, his brother Aaron. Moses angrily destroys the tablets, but manages to talk God into sparing the Israelites. Levites assemble behind Moses and kill 3,000 of the wayward tribesmen. Owing to this, the Levites are made the priestly tribe. Moses climbs the mountain again, where he's given a replacement set of tablets. Once he's back in the valley, the people build the tabernacle, just as they were told to, 
And that's the book of Exodus. Leviticus is all about the priestly class. All sorts of ordinances and instructions on what they wear, sacrifices, offerings, how much of each the priest can keep. Aaron is ordained as the high priest while his sons take their roles too. But with this comes responsibility and accountability. To the point that two of his sons die because they didn't follow the rules exactly. Being a priest is serious business. There were also rules concerning personal behavior. What they weren't allowed to eat, blood, pigs, camels, finless and scaleless water animals, flying insects. How to purify things seen as being unclean. Skin diseases, mold and mildew, essentially rules on how to stay healthy. There is also the origin of the term scapegoat. Literally, a goat that's taken out from the camp to the wild and set free, symbolically bearing the sins of the nation. The text outlines the punishments for numerous offenses, sets out many of the long-standing feasts, festivals, and sacred days. This part of the Pentateuch lays the foundation that much of the Jewish religion continues to follow through this day. The Sabbath day, the Feast of Weeks, unleavened bread, first fruits, trumpets, booths, the Sabbath year, the 50-year jubilee when everyone is to return to his own land, the poor to be redeemed, with the proclamation of liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. While Leviticus doesn't really make for compelling reading, it does help us to understand how the religion got to be where it is today, at least the beginning of it. Which gets me to the book of Numbers. That begins with, you guessed it, Numbers, at least in the form of a census. At this point, the Israelites have been free from Egypt for 13 months, at least by our calendar. Numbers also lays out more rules, how a man can become a Nazarite, how to clean the dead, to test for an unfaithful wife. While here, still at Sinai, they celebrate Passover. Moses leads the people away from Sinai, and the complaining begins, well, really continues. Manna's not good enough, and they won't meet. So, quails suddenly appear, and they overindulge gluttony. They are hit with a plague. There is dissent in the ranks with Moses' siblings Aaron and Miriam plotting against him. Because of this, Miriam catches leprosy. Then one of the pivotal moments in the wandering narrative. Moses sends twelve men, one from each tribe, to spy out what's awaiting them in Canaan. After forty days, the spies return and what they report back is disheartening, at least for most. Warriors, giants, walled cities. Of the twelve, ten recommend that the people don't continue to the promised land, thinking it would be too difficult to capture. Only Joshua and Caleb dissent. The group also brought back samplings of the local produce, symbolically backing up God's promise of a land flowing with milk and honey and the entire narrative of God's intent for the Israelites shifts here. He had rescued them from Egyptian bondage, then made a covenant at Mount Sinai. 
But they did not respond with faith, gratitude, and obedience, but instead with disbelief, ingratitude, and repeated rebellion, and the seemingly constant threat of returning to slavery in Egypt. They were a stiff-necked people, at least most of them. Due to the disheartening reports, the people refused to advance into Canaan. God then condemns them to 40 years in the desert, allowing enough time that the adults in the population will largely die off. What we're told is that of the people who were over 20 years old when the spies returned, only Joshua and Caleb were still alive 38 years later when they crossed into Canaan, with Joshua leading them. And the Israelites continued their grumblings. When the people are told that they are forbidden from entering Canaan, many of them strike out on their own, launching an attack on both the Amalekites and the Canaanites, one that was easily repulsed. Korah leads many others to rebel against Moses. They, along with everything they own, are swallowed up by the earth and descend into Sheol. In another part of the text, false priests are consumed by flames, confirming that only the descendants of Aaron can become the high priest. Other Levites can become lower priests and serve in religious functions, though no Levites will be allotted specific territory when they finally get to the promised land. Instead, they will be given cities spread throughout the territories of the other 11 tribes. There are more plagues. At one point, the people need water. Moses strikes a rock and water springs forth. But he didn't follow the prescribed process exactly and disappoints God. Because of this, he won't be allowed to enter the promised land when they finally make it there, which is still several decades away. As they wonder, they need to pass through the land of Edom, occupied by the Edomites. But the Edomites refuse to allow safe passage. This will come back later. Aaron dies and is succeeded as high priest by his son Eleazar. A Canaanite king hears of the approaching Israelites, and the two armies battle it out, with the Israelites winning. And in this case, in what was only a small part of Canaan, the Israelites destroyed the Canaanite towns and villages. Then, the Israelites complain again and are met with venomous snakes. This time, they are spared when they look upon a bronze snake Moses places on a pole. They then defeat the Amorite forces of King Sihon, seizing their land and settling there. King Og of Bashan faces the same fate. Sometime later, the Moabite king Balak calls up the false prophet Balaam, who rides in on a talking donkey. Truly. Though being a false prophet, Balaam sees the favor that God has for the Israelites and tells of what's to come some thousand-plus years later. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. At the time, it was a bit of a head-scratcher. After hearing Balaam's four different prophecies, the Moabite king Balak heads home. Israelite men and Moabite women get together 
and worship the Canaanite deity Baal. And this does not go well. The high priest's son slays an Israelite man and a Midianite woman, which was enough to satisfy God's wrath. Being that we're still in the book of Numbers, another census is taken. Joshua is selected as the official successor to Moses. Then, the rules around vows are established. Basically, if a man vows to do something, then he has to do it. Seems simple enough. There are more rules around the festivals, offerings, and sacrifices. The Israelites fight and defeat the Midianites, allowing only their unwed women and children to live. With this, there is enough land to be had that the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh are allotted the land they will continue to inhabit after the other tribes cross the Jordan. Just to be sure, Moses makes them vow that they will help the remaining tribes conquer the remaining land. Speaking of that, Moses then gives out the boundaries of the land all the tribes will come to inhabit, along with the specific man who will lead each tribe. Cities of refuge are named, along with why they are necessary. There are also about three dozen more towns that will be occupied by the Levites, and that's the book of Numbers. The final book in the Pentateuch is Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy literally translates to second law, which does not mean that it's a second set of laws, but essentially a repeat of the original set, organized around three separate speeches that Moses gave to the people. And the people likely needed reminding. Remember that when numbers began, the Israelites were just more than a year past the Exodus. Now it's almost 40 years later, and everyone older than 20 then is now dead, except for Joshua and Caleb, and obviously Moses. To everyone else, the giving of the law was well before their time. So, in their history books, well, really scrolls. Add to that their repeated grumblings and violations of the code, and some reminding was certainly necessary. The people were preparing to cross the Jordan, and Moses was worried about what would happen to them when he was no longer the stern father figure. Moses starts out by reminding the people of the journey from Egypt to where they are, which was on the outskirts of Canaan, east of the Jordan River. He reminds them of their covenant with God and how they need to resist worshiping the native Canaanite deities. To emphasize that point, Moses reminds the people they are to utterly destroy everyone currently inhabiting Canaan. They cannot intermarry with anyone in Canaan. Which makes sense, since if they're utterly destroyed, there will be no one to marry. But they can marry women from outside of Canaan. He tells them that a prophet will come in the future, but also to avoid false prophets, telling them how to identify those. Then there are a few tweaks to the existing laws, likely born from the four decades' wandering experience. How to deal with dead bodies found in the country. What to do with women who make false pre-marriage claims. What a widow can do when her brother-in-law refuses to marry her. He predicts what's going to happen to the Israelites, that they will fail to maintain the covenant, and then tells them what the consequence of that is 
that they will be defeated by their enemies and the people scattered among all nations. Cue the ominous music in foreshadowing. He then blesses the people, tribe by tribe, ascends Mount Nebo, where God shows him the promised land, and dies. In the last chapter of the Pentateuch, Joshua assumes leadership over the Israelites. And that's it. From the beginning to, almost, the resettlement of Canaan. In one episode, 30 minutes or less, in four and a half years of background, foreground, rabbit holes, pauses, sidebars, and probably the most obvious stopping point for an episode so far. Join me next week when I'll begin a new chapter of the podcast and start the next major section of the Old Testament, the books of the history of the Israelites, with the book of Joshua. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, Help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.